0: Well, please uh, turn uh, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 as we continue uh, this series where we've been sharing a meal uh, with Jesus and his closest disciples. Uh, John chapter 14, which was on page, what was it, 1082 of the Church Bibles, John 14. Now, uh, hopefully, if you've been here in recent weeks, you'll remember the scene. We are in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples uh, in just the last hours of his life. Before another 24 hours is through, he will be hanging on a cross. But up to this point, everything in Jesus' life, everything for the disciples should have made this a joyful moment. It's the Passover meal, remember. They are celebrating God's kindness, God's goodness to them, His grace. And recently, things have been going so well. They've just entered Jerusalem, a triumphal entry. The crowds had celebrated the arrival of their leader. You can imagine it, can't you? As there they were, they literally rode in on Jesus' coattails as this huge crowd praised Jesus. You'd imagine them starting to put things together, thinking, you know, this could get really big. He's going straight to the top. This is going in a really good direction. And then all of a sudden, the action stops. The crowds that have been praising Jesus proclaiming him as king are shut out and they go into this upper room and really as they do, things start to unravel. This king whom they had seen proclaimed as such as they walked into Jerusalem now humiliates himself before them, washing their stinky feet. And then as things continue, one of them, one of the people that they trust most in the world, Judas, who's been with them for these whole three years, leaves in an instant to betray Jesus. And then you have this constant refrain that that Jesus keeps going on about, that he's going away, that he's soon to depart. Everything is starting to unravel. And then it continues right at the end of John 13, you have the one that they regarded as their rock, Peter, the one who's always brave, always the first to go into the breach comes out with yet another bold claim, hopefully to turn things around. Things are going in the wrong direction, so he thinks i better speak up. Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. But Jesus answers, will you really do that? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Here in the upper room, everything is falling apart. And so it's not a surprise as we get to John 14 that the disciples are deeply troubled, troubled of heart, The literal word is that their whole body, their whole guts is churned up by the events that are taking place. Everything was going so well and now it's falling apart. And as we look in on their troubled hearts, what we need to see is, as we have seen all throughout this first chapter, John 13, where we've been in recent weeks, what is revealed to us here in this small room echoes not just through the the confines of that room, it echoes throughout the whole world. As we saw last week when we saw Judas's heart revealed to us, we saw that was indeed the human heart. God will once more reveal something of the human condition to us in this small room. As we zoom in in these early verses of John 14 on the disciples' hearts, troubled as they are, we will see that they echo the trouble that plagues our world, that plagues the human hearts, hearts here tonight and the hearts all around this city and this world you see where it begins in verse 1? We are told in John 14 that they were troubled of heart. It's the same word Jesus used of his own heart in John 13 verse 21. He there was churned up. It's a sense when you know something's not right, that all the pieces aren't fitting together. Troubled of heart they are. And it's not a surprise, is it? There's lots of things I imagine that are causing this feeling for them, but I think the two big ones are these. The first is this growing sense of loss. Everything that they held dear is slipping through their fingers. Judas, he'd been one of them, a close friend, and gone in a moment. And now this talk of Jesus' departure from them, what's he talking about? The sense of loss just builds and builds and builds. And is it not this same sense of loss that shapes the trouble outside this little room? You Think about the way our world operates and the trouble that our world feels. So much of it is to do with this sense of losing things. We've seen it in recent times with with the financial troubles our world is in and it's not just the global national loss that we feel. Just this week I was hearing on the radio and you, you sort of think the worst of it's over and there you hear grown adults Mature adults, experienced, skilled, well-trained, people losing their jobs for the very first time in their lives, no idea how it's come to this. Troubled of heart. We feel it in so many different ways, whether it's relationship loss or broken friendships. We are a world very much with a sense of loss. And then there's the greatest loss of them all, the loss that death causes. And I suspect that is the loss that is shaping these chapters in John's Gospel. That is the the shadow over all of these chapters that, that Jesus keeps talking about. He's about to depart, I'm about to depart. And it is the shadow that hangs over our whole world, is it not? And it's interesting, all the other things that give us this sense of loss, of losing things that are precious to us, we, we don't deny them. We don't deny when we lose our job. We don't deny when we struggle with health. But when it comes to death, we're, we're great at denying that, the loss that it causes. And I suspect we do it because this is the one we know we're powerless before. And so our world just lives in denial to this loss. One of the uh, leading exponents of this this denial was the Swiss-born psychiatrist, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote a definitive book on death called On Death and Dying. And here's what she said of that moment. She said, The moment of death is neither frightening nor powerful. It is merely the peaceful cessation. It's like a raindrop returning to the ocean. It's a beautiful quote, isn't it? But she's got to be kidding Rubbish. I'm sure you know that's rubbish and I know from the experience of sitting in many kitchens and many lounge rooms what rubbish she is talking about. As you see families making preparations for the funeral of a loved one you know Kubla ross is talking out of her hat and you'll know that's nonsense too if death has ever affected you that it is not merely peaceful cessation there's nothing peaceful about it nothing fearless about it. It is deeply troubling. And yes, there are reasons, aren't there, in life to have a troubled heart and they don't get bigger than death and that is what is shadowing these chapters, a sense of loss. There's another one too that that has been uh, creeping away in chapter 13. It is the sense of growing failure. We need to remember these words that we have here in John 14 are spoken to disciples who under immense emotional pressure are on the brink of massive failure. For all their big talk, all Peter's words, all their their claims of loyalty, they are all about to fall away. It started with Judas and he'll never come back. And then Peter and soon we're told in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, you will all fall away on account of me. They know that failure is coming. And I take it if you've been a Christian for any length of time, at some level or another, you will know this sense of failure. Getting to the point where you know that you've said things or not said things or you've done things or failed to do them. But when you think about them as a genuine Christian, they make you embarrassed and ashamed. You look back on them and you think, I can't believe I said that. Can't believe I kept quiet then. Can't believe I did that. What was I thinking? We get to these moments and we look upon our failure and we start to wonder, am I really a Christian? I mean, how can I be a Christian and keep stuffing up like this? These are the sort of troubles that plague our hearts, don't they? And I'm sure that there are some here tonight troubled by the failure, that sense of failure, that sense of being trapped by it, that sense of having no way out of it. Now, whatever it is that may trouble your heart, whether it's loss or failure or many other things that can plague us I suspect the big problem we have with them is this, that we don't know how to calm them we don't have a solution, all all our plans don't seem to work because sometimes there's no way to get things back that you've lost, there's no plan there's no secret and sometimes there's no way back from failure is there, sometimes our failures are so big there's no way back and that for me is what really troubles our hearts This feeling of being powerless and lost. Not knowing the way forward. You ever known that feeling? I was thinking about that this week and I was reminded of perhaps my worst moment as a father uh, thus far in about four and a bit years. It was after a uh, Sunday morning service and uh, Liz and I were walking home with the children and we got into a conversation and Finn had run on ahead as he does down the sort of Chorley Lane or whatever that road is called. Uh, back there and uh, so we turned the corner looking for him and he disappeared and we thought oh I'm sure he's just gone down there a bit and so we started to wander and as as seconds turned into minutes still no fin you're starting to sort of uh, think the worst and you're you're trying to sort of round up whoever's there and we round up all sorts of people to help us look for him and we we couldn't find him five minutes, ten, fifteen, go past no fin we walked all the way home down to the shops nothing Then eventually I double back and uh, I'm walking, uh, taking the shortcut through uh, the graveyard and there is Finn in the very far corner of the graveyard, running as fast as I've ever seen him, yelling at the top of his voice, round and round and round in circles. Utterly lost, utterly helpless, desperate. That's what it looks like to have a troubled heart. That's the picture of the disciples here. And into a room filled with troubled hearts like that, Jesus speaks these remarkable words in John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He says them just hours before his own brutal death, his own heart filled with grief and pain, his own heart troubled. He says, no, actually, he commands you, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's not a command made in denial of the realities we face, the things that trouble us. It is shouted straight at them. And then he shows you how to stop your troubled heart by giving you another command. You see, they're trusting God, trust also in me. And in the verses that follow, he gives you the reasons you can trust him. And really, the big one is this trust me, wait for it, I'm going. Now, as I read that this week, I think, how unexpected a comfort is that? What sort of confidence does does that give a, a room full of troubled men? Trust me, I'm about to leave you. How could that news be at all comforting for them? Don't be afraid, trust me, I'm going. Especially when you see in John 13, verse 33, you see what Jesus says there, where I am going, you can't come. It's getting worse, isn't it? Seems even less comforting when when you know he's going, when you know you can't follow, and then when you see where he is going. He's going back to his father. He's been saying it again and again and again. He's going to the place where God dwells, the place that we're told from the very earliest pages of Scripture that we were created to live there. We were made for that place. A place where we are loved, where there is no more mourning or crying or pain. He's going there. Where you enjoy the sheer depths of the beauty of God's creation and you marvel at his majesty. That's where he's going and you can't go there. I was reading my kids' the children's Bible the other day that we've started to read this one which you can get over in the church and I reckon it's the best one I've come across so far. We're up to about number six and this is the sixth one. Uh, through And I was reading uh, this part the other night, which I think nails exactly how hard this news is for us. It says, you, you see, sin had come into God's perfect world and would never leave. God's children would always be running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would be troubled now and never work properly again. God said, You will have to leave the garden now. He said that to his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your home. It's not the place for you anymore. Now as I read those words the other night to Finn and Jamie, it it upset them. I mean it took some serious debriefing before they let me turn off the light and go to bed and get on with with the rest of the night. But you know what, as I thought about it later, I thought that's exactly right. It should upset me. That's the way it should be. It should break my heart to see what we've lost, what could have been. Jesus says to troubled hearts, I'm going and you can't come. Now let me tell you why that news can calm even the most troubled heart, why it's the best news you will ever hear. It's good news that he goes because of the path he takes home. Let me read Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 and you'll see what I mean. Speaking of Jesus, it said, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, in his going, the journey uh, is just as important as the destination. Jesus' going, as Paul said earlier, refers to the chain of events that would begin just some hours later with his arrest, and then his trial, and then his torture, and eventually his cruel death. That's what it means when he says, I am going. It's the path he chose to walk home for us because he knew the the only path between us and God, the only one marked out for us, is one paved by death and judgment. That's all that lies ahead of us between us and God. Certain rightful judgment for anyone who rejects God's love. His going is good news because he walks that path instead of me. It's why he came to go to death for me, so I could walk away clean. That's what he's been saying to them in the upper room, isn't it, when he said, unless I wash you, you can have no part in me. His going is the best news you've ever heard because he walks the path you were meant to walk. And not only that, his going is the best news you've ever heard because of the welcome he receives when he gets home. As God raises his own son from the dead, he declares to the world, yes, enough, I accept my son's life for yours because he's my son, because he is perfect, because I love him. You see, Jesus' going includes his arrival. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 puts it best when you see why his going is so important for us. It says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. And so his going is the best news you could ever hear because of the path he took, because of the welcome he received when he got there, and even better than that, you see what our passage then goes on to say, because now he can come back. And departures are hard, aren't they? I hate goodbyes. It's no wonder that the disciples, as they know that moment's coming, are troubled of heart, but Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. I'm going. And he goes to prepare a place for them. There is a place for you, says John. You know, I love uh, John. Uh, of, all the, uh, of all the gospel writers, he's my favourite by a mile. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to have a favourite. But uh, a fisherman poet, what more could you ask? And I reckon there's probably something in every single chapter of John's gospel that, that over the years has wowed me. But right at the top, the absolute pinnacle, are two verses here you see in John 14. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. There is a place for you. How good is that? What is promised here is what we most long for. Here it is. We are wired up to long for home. We need a place. That's the way God's designed us. The great curse he put on Adam and Eve was to be homeless. We need a home and we know it when we see it, don't we? It's where we belong. It's where we're totally accepted. It's where you can be yourself. You can wear the tracky dax and walk around the house and feel totally okay with it. Do you have that word, tracky dax? Probably not. Tracksuit pants. where I can use a word like tracky dax and not get laughed at. <laughs> That's what home is. It's, it's where the sights and the smells and the colours and the sounds all make sense. They fit. I went and saw, uh, just uh, I think it was Boxing Day with, with Liz, we went and saw the movie Australia. Has anyone actually seen that movie other than me? Yes. There we were, opening night. I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be crowded, we better get there early. And I think it was Liz and I and about two other people in this massive <laughs> cinema so proud of my nation. (laughs) And it was a terrible movie in many ways. (laughs) But I've got to tell you, for all three and a bit hours of it, I was there. I was there. The sounds, uh, the trees, all the accents made sense, the jokes, you name it. And both Liz and I felt exactly the same way. We're we're driving home together. You're driving through suburbs like there's a Brightside or whatever it is on the way back from Meadowhall. Suburbs that look nothing like Australia And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I was there and we wanted to go see it again the next night just just to be transported again for a moment. That's what home feels like. Home is about all of those things and more, isn't it? It's the open door, it's the room where you're expected, you're welcome. Now, Reading these verses again uh, this week got me thinking, when is it that Sheffield and Fullwood became home for me? Because they are as much as any place in the world has ever been. How did that happen? I can tell you how it happened and the details matter, don't they? It happened on January 1st, 2007. Flight QF3386 coming into Manchester Airport. That's when it happened. It happened as I stood there with my family on the curb with more bags than you could possibly imagine and around the corner comes this huge car with Jane Patterson and Tim Cudmore in it, the welcome wagon. And they welcomed us and they grabbed our bags and our kids piled in and they slept for the first time in 30 hours. That's when I was home. And it became home when we pulled up outside 50 Brooklyn's Crescent and we trundled in and there's this huge welcome poster there. And up the stairs is, is the promised land, is my bed. <laughs> With my sheets and my pillow and it happened when later that night, the oven on our very first night there stopped working and there is Jason Clark suddenly appearing at the door with a hot meal. We were home and in the days and weeks that followed as the, door keeps, uh, the doorbell kept ringing and people kept coming and saying, welcome, it's good you're here. That's how a house on the other side of the world that you've never been to becomes a home. Jesus says to you, I went to the cross so that my Father's house with many rooms, there is a place for you right there. And do you know why there's a place? Because it's your home now. And you don't come as a guest, you're not a visitor, it's not there's the guest room where everything's neat and, and we, don't, we don't ever go in that room other than the guests. This is your home, this is the family home. And let me say, no matter how great or even terrible your homes have been throughout your life or even your father's have been, This is the home you've longed for all your life. This is the place for you. So let me ask you tonight, do you long for it? I mean really long for it. And This is how C.S. Lewis put it. He always puts it best. He said, there have been many times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we've ever desired anything else. It's the secret signature of each soul the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. Do you long for that? When troubles come and they will, says Jesus, we are commanded to rest in that promise. Lean back on it, it can take the weight. There is a place for you. You know, often when it comes to the the hope of heaven, we're encouraged to think about it a bit like as if you're planning this great holiday, you know, the amazing summer holiday where you you get out the lonely planet guide and you're wanting to know all the details. But that's not it at all, is it? That's not even the half of it. This isn't about going on holiday. This is about coming home at last. And what makes it so good, good is that all the things we've spoken about, yes, place, the nature of it, All those things, but right at the heart of it is something even better than all of that. He's there. He's there. That's what all the going was for. As far as Jesus was concerned, that's why he left his disciples. Not just to prepare a better place for them than they have here. No, his end goal was very specific. Do you see it there at the end of verse 3? I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus says to troubled hearts, you'll be with me where I am. Let me ask you, do you think much about that reunion? Think about what makes a place home. It's all the things we've spoken of. All the things I spoke of 50 Brooklyn's Crescent are true, but I'll tell you what really makes it home. It's what happens when I dial the phone number of 50 Brooklyn's Crescent. It's what happens when I walk through the door. That's what makes it home. It's who's there. Let me say, whether your home life is a joy for you or it's a real struggle, know this, you are going to be with him. And you cannot imagine how good that will be. Don't let your hearts be troubled, he says. There is a place for you with me. And so be confident in this hope. And do you see why in verse 4? You know the way. You know the way. Thomas hears that and he replies in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how could we know the way? I mean, he wants a map, doesn't he? Show us the way. Give us the steps. What's the next turn? I love Jesus' response. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, in the same way that heaven's joy, the heart of heaven is Jesus, the heart and the very meaning of life, this side of heaven, is Jesus. He is the way. There's none other. I was reading recently of discussions at the recent Anglican General Synod that was held in York where there'd been a report that had a stimulating and open discussion about the uniqueness of Jesus all sorts of different opinions and it was really fruitful to see all those opinions mixed around as if it was some fascinating debate. John 14 verse 6 says it's not at all. There is no other debate, no other question upon which the whole hope of the world hangs. Kicking around the idea of Jesus' uniqueness like some philosophical football is, is a bit and as wise as kicking around a ticking bomb with a red and a green cord and and being fascinated that there's different opinions as to which one to cut. Cut Jesus out and bang, there's no more life, no way forward, just a lie. Just a lie that says I'll be okay when I walk that path between me and the Father's house. Or cut him out and all that awaits me there is death and judgement. And so if tonight you know you live life cut free from Jesus, know that there is no more important question for you than this. Do you trust him? That he went for you to bring you back where you're meant to be? And for those of us that do but still live with troubled hearts, hear his words of comfort. You know the way to the place I am going. It's an unexpected statement from Jesus. Usually he's telling his disciples the exact opposite. He's usually saying, you think you know, but you don't. But now he says, you think you don't know. You think this is uncertain. You think this is tricky and complex, but actually you do know. My going, my cross, my resurrection tell you everything you need to know. And see clearly what Jesus means here when he says this in verse 6. He's not saying that my going tells you the way to live, like he's some example to follow. He is that, but so much more. He doesn't show us the way, he is the way. You see, at the foot of the cross is where I'm meant to live. Life is not some journey that I'm travelling to a destination. I've arrived. It's about standing still right there. For there at last I find my way back to the Father, the way home. There at last someone actually tells me the truth about myself, as hard as that is to hear, and tells me the truth about God, as wonderful as that is to hear. There I find what life is about it's about His love, His grace, His rescue. I need not, I cannot move from the cross, because there at last I see I am loved. And I see the full extent of it, as Jesus said, right at the start of John 13. I am loved as a child with a place in his house. Now when you know that, what could possibly trouble your heart? So let me say, if you are restless as a Christian, or troubled, or fearful, or insecure, this is what you've forgotten. Jesus. It is as Jesus says to Philip in verse 9, don't you know me? Even after all these years we've been together, don't you know me? See, the human folly is to think that life is about moving on. It's, it's about progress, that life is some epic journey. Jesus says to you, "Ah, that's where all your trouble comes from. Endless movement. Just stand still. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. I remember when I finally found Finn in the graveyard. He's still running around and screaming at me. And that's exactly what I had to say. Stand still. You're all right. I'm here. Let's go home. That's what Jesus is saying here in these verses. And let me say in closing, tonight is about filling your hearts with heaven and with the great joy of heaven, Jesus. Now some will say to you that if you have your heads and hearts full of heaven, then you are no earthly good If your head's in the clouds all the time, then you're going to be useless in this life. Again, that's rubbish. You can be too pious in this life, you can be too religious, you can be too impersonal, but you cannot be too heavenly minded. This is the very engine room of life to the full, setting your heart right there. The person whose home is in heaven lives life to the full. I remember reading uh, an account of... uh, the life of Henry Venner, a famous preacher, and it was said of him as he was dying that the prospect of death made him so jubilant, so high-spirited that his doctor said that the joy kept him alive for a further two weeks. (laughs) That's us. And if you live the average human experience, there will be many things that come along the way that will trouble your heart, from the mundane to the frustrating to the sort of things that if you knew they were coming now, they would floor you. But John 14 says, in the midst of all of that, do not let your hearts be troubled. In fact, he commands it. And he follows it up with another one. Trust me. He says to you, remember, there is a place and I'll come get you when it's time. Now, Finn has just started school. He's been there for a few months and 3.15 is home time. Uh, Most afternoons, Liz picks him up. Uh, but I've gotten the habit in recent weeks, Friday is my turn to go pick him up, which I love. But I remember a few weeks ago when it was the first time it was my turn in the morning, he was a bit unsure whether I'd get it right. Liz Liz was an expert at this, but I was a novice, so he wanted to explain it all to me, what time and where I needed to be. And I had to assure him, you know, look, I'm going to be there. When when it's time, I promise you, I'll be there. And I remember when he did come out at 3.15, there he is, face beaming, waving hands like a A crazy man, and he grabs his teacher's hand and he's saying, That's my dad. And I'm trying to be calm. You know, no other parents reacting like that, so I'm just calm. Come on, Phil. (laughs) But I was thinking about it again this afternoon, and I I remembered that uh, what Jesus is saying here is that he will have no such inhibitions when the time comes to take you to be with him. It was the very reason he came. That moment is his great joy. That's what he went to the cross for and that was what it was all about. And so when the time comes, he will be jubilant. He longs for that moment. Let me ask you, do you long for it the way your Saviour does? Let's pray.